The following is brought to you by the generous support of Clio. Welcome back. This is part two of False Confessions. In the previous episode, we were joined by Making a Murderer's Laura Nyrider and certified forensic interviewer David Thompson. During our time together, we discussed why innocent people confess to crimes they didn't commit. We learned that police are allowed to lie and even present fake evidence while questioning suspects. And lastly, we talked about the theatrics and intimidation tactics used in interrogation rooms, all with the aim of pressuring people into confessions. We now turn our discussion towards the inherent risks for children during police investigations and how parents can become their worst enemy without even knowing it. My name is Michael Simanchik, and you're listening to the California Innocence Project podcast here on Legal Talk Network. Spend most of my life in prison Chasing a dream called justice Chasing a dream, chasing a dream Won't somebody please hear my plea Won't somebody please set me free Law enforcement needs powerful tools to do their job. It's not easy catching criminals who don't want to be caught. At the same time, nobody wants to see innocent people go to prison. So how do we balance those two objectives? What changes are needed to prevent false confessions? How do we protect children during interrogations, sometimes from their own well-intended parents? Laura Nyrider had some thoughts about this. If you've seen the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer, you might remember her client Brendan Dassey. Brendan was a teenager with mental impairments who was only 16 when he confessed to being involved in the rape and murder of Teresa Halbach. His confession was videotaped, and what made it controversial was that Brendan clearly had an intellectual disability that made him susceptible to suggestion by the police. Laura believes Brendan is innocent. She challenged his confession on the grounds it was coerced due to Brendan's age and mental frailty. Here's what she had to say about safeguarding children during a criminal investigation. You know, and there's so many things we can do. One really important step that is just starting to take off is requiring kids in the interrogation room to have counsel before their question, to get lawyers before their question, right? We talked about Miranda rights, the fact that, that people are warned before questioning that they do have a right to a lawyer. But 85%, 85% of people waive those Miranda rights. And that rate goes up. If you're innocent, because of course, if you're innocent, it's like, I don't need a lawyer. I don't need to invoke my right to silence. Of course, I'll talk to you. I just want to be helpful, right? Everybody waives those rights. And just think about it for a second. If you're a kid, if you're 13 or 14 or 15 or 16, you know, and someone says to you, you have the right to remain silent and you have the right to a lawyer. I don't know what a lawyer does. I don't know how to get a lawyer. I don't know that that lawyer is going to be on my side. I don't understand what a right is. You know, I don't understand why I should stay silent versus not. None of this is sort of useful <laughs> to me in the moment. And what you see are, are kids waving their Miranda rights without having any comprehension of what they mean, right? Waving this right to a lawyer, giving it up without having any idea what that right, how important that right is. Because again, as we said, that if you ask for a lawyer, that stops the interrogation. The Miranda rights themselves, those words we've all heard on all the police shows, you have the right to remain silent, you know, you have the right to a lawyer. The Miranda rights themselves, as written, require a 10th grade level of reading comprehension and vocabulary comprehension to understand. A lot of kids don't have that. 
So one big big thing that we advocate for on behalf of, of youth up to age 18 in the interrogation room, you know, we shouldn't be giving them the choice about whether to give up this vital constitutional right, right? We don't let kids enter contracts on their own. We don't let kids waive other kinds of legal rights that they have without an adult consulting with them. You know, we don't let kids go into the tanning bed without a parental consent, let alone give up their constitutional right to a lawyer. You got to get a lawyer in the room for every kid being questioned. Illinois and California recently have adopted the first statutes in the country that guarantee counsel to at least some kids who are being questioned in, in more serious cases. So those bills are great starts. We need to expand it. And it needs to be a lawyer for the kids. That's really important as opposed to a parent. A parent, and I, right. And I say that, right, as a mom. I've got two boys. And of course I would want to know if the police were questioning them. But here's the thing. A lot of parents don't know this, right? Only 13 states, or only about 13 states, require police to even try to notify a parent before they question their kids. So you can Wild. have a cop show up at school and question your kid, and you never have to be told in most states. Even when parents are told and they're brought into the interrogation room, even in those sort of best-case scenarios, parents are just as susceptible as kids to these interrogation tactics. They'll be told falsely that their kids have, you know, DNA was found at the scene. They'll be told that it'll help their kid if, if the kid confesses. They can be co-opted and almost turned against their kids, almost made an arm of the interrogators, right? A tool for the interrogators to use. And those are some of the most difficult interrogation videos to watch, frankly, are, are ones where the police actually succeed in, in getting the parent to help pressure the kid to confess. The bottom line is we need lawyers. We need lawyers and we need to sort of make sure they're there, not give kids the option to waive this, this constitutional right. Get lawyers in the room, straighten things out. That's how we'll, we'll solve this problem of false confessions for kids. If you have kids like I do, you know that parents will do anything for their children. But as you just heard, in these high-pressure situations, the love of a parent can be the downfall of their child. Parents can also be tricked and may encourage cooperation when the best thing to do is lawyer up. Parental influence can cause children to say things they otherwise wouldn't, things that are untrue, statements that can ruin their lives for decades to come. Investigators are aware of this influence and they use it to solve crimes. Parents can be their child's worst enemy during an interrogation and not even know it. Under our current criminal justice system, you are better off assuming everything investigators tell you is a lie, or at the very least, strategically designed to get as much information as possible. So what should we take from this? Sure, aggressive tactics and deception can trick the most savvy of criminals. But how many guilty busts justify trapping an innocent person? What are we willing to risk for safe streets? Maybe we don't have to make that choice. Perhaps there is a better way. David Thompson envisions a world where we can still bust the bad guys while protecting the innocent. Here's more from him about why juveniles are so at risk. Yeah, I mean, we know just traditionally juveniles' uh, thought process, their cognitive process is just not developed as much as, as an adult is. They also don't have the life experience and, and I'm stereotyping juveniles, right? But generally speaking, you know, a juvenile is just cognitively not at the same level as an adult. And they're also typically in a situation where they've been trained by their parents or by whoever to respect police and, and respect the fact that if a police officer wants to talk to you, you sit and you allow them to talk to you. And police don't lie to you. Investigators don't lie to you. And so 
you have a juvenile who, you know, if people are listening, thinking of their, their kid, their child that's being interviewed about something and the police lie to them because they're allowed to, they waive their Miranda rights because they don't really realize what they are, or they don't think they need an attorney because maybe they didn't do anything wrong and, and they feel protected with authority. That combination of things is, is oftentimes as juveniles, we make more immediate gratifying decisions. So if I admit to something, that means I can get out of the room. I'm not thinking what's going to happen a month from now or six months from now. As typically as an adult, we're thinking a little bit more longer term, realizing if I admit to something, there's a domino effect after this. So there's just some multitude of issues that create increased vulnerability for juveniles that investigators should pay attention to. And I think we're starting to go down that path as well. But if I was ever on the other side of the fence, per se, that my first thing would be, I, I want to have an attorney and representation in the room, not because I distrust the investigator, but because oftentimes we don't act in our own legal best interest. And, you know, we see the same as a lot of research recently with, with juveniles is there's always been this argument, you know, mom and dad should be in the room with the juvenile. And what we've learned is mom and dad are not necessarily the best idea. Because mom and dad say, tell the cop the truth, tell them what you did, which clearly from a legal standpoint, they lose any leverage in that potential conversation. So my first step would be to, to call an attorney the belief that the truth will set you free and that the truth eventually will come out, unfortunately, is up to two attorneys deciding how they persuade a jury to tell a story rather than whether or not it's true or not. So have representation would be my answer. That's a great answer. And as a lawyer, I 100% agree. Get right. yourself a lawyer. <laughs> Can you give us some examples of maybe where there was a good faith approach to a strong interrogation, but it, it ended up ensnaring an innocent person? So in other words, an investigator came in strong, was trying to do a, an interrogation, and then ultimately landed an innocent person in prison. I could tell you, Brendan Bassey, Brendan's case, personally for me, is really what kind of created this passion for me in this world of wrongful convictions and false confessions. You know, traditionally, my role was uh, helping to create and develop content on interview and interrogation and, and train investigators. And when I first saw the interrogation clips of, of Brendan Dassey, you know, my heart broke and I thought, well, this isn't good. This is, this is not, not only is this a miscarriage of justice, but for me as a, as a trainer and somebody who's focused on doing things the right way, this was a representative of exactly what not to do. And so that, that case, actually, I took that video, and the first thing I did was write an article about it and then actually use that video to teach a presentation to about 200 certified forensic interviewers at an interviewing conference, all practitioners, to highlight, here's what we don't do. In that case, uh, again, we've got more involved with incredible people like Laura Nyrider um, and Steve Driesen and, and groups that advocate for Brendan and learn more about mental capacity and not just relating to being a juvenile, but in Brendan's specific case, you know, he, he struggled with communication, with language. And when you look at the speech pathologist report and you look at his educational reports, his individual education plans, you see that Brendan struggled severely with communication. And, and you look at the interrogations and see he wasn't communicating. He was being communicated at, there was a lot of leading questions. There was fact feeding. There was contamination of his confession. There was no representation. There's two detectives with just Brendan. And again, it just, it hit 
every one of those indicators that false or not, there's no way this is an involuntary, reliable confession. And that's, that's really what the court should are looking at or should have looked at differently. As we heard earlier, when investigators lie, it creates a lot of confusion. Most people are law-abiding and have grown up trusting the police. The men and women in blue are the first people we call when we're in trouble. After all, they fight the bad guys and run towards danger while the rest of us flee from it. The idea that police officers would lie and trick good citizens is not something most of us can accept. And that's when the devastating spiral of doubt begins. From that point forward, an innocent person is in great peril. But there's hope. A modern movement of investigators and legal authorities are beginning to question the validity of lying to suspects. I talked with expert, author, and former Washington, D.C. police detective James Trainum about this very thing. But, you know, when you lie to somebody, one of the things that it can do is there's a thing called an internalized false confession. It's when you actually begin to believe that you may have committed the crime. And think about it. If I'm talking to you, if I'm telling you about all these witnesses who saw you do it, all this evidence that we have against you, and you know, I can't lie to you about that because if I lie to you, I'll go to jail, which of course is a lie. And then you start thinking, well, you know, he wouldn't lie to me. Maybe something happened. Maybe I blacked out. Maybe I suppressed this memory. And you actually begin to think that. But all of this mistrust between the community and law enforcement, a lot of it is generated by us. I mean, by going in there and lying to people and tricking them, uh, you don't need to do that. The UK has proven that you don't need to do that. We feel like you have to. But when you lie to people here, why would they trust you anywhere else? When investigators sense their methods are wearing down a suspect's resolve, it can cause them to press harder. Of course, for an innocent and uncertain person, this increasingly confrontational approach can be very intimidating and put an immense strain on them. This means that they are much more likely to second-guess their own memories, and as we have seen many times before, it opens the door to false confession. But David Thompson and I talked about a different way for investigators to gather much-needed information from suspects and witnesses. Instead, he recommends deploying a non-confrontational interrogation model when questioning a person of interest. Here's David discussing why that approach might gather better information. I would say the last you know, five to 10 years, there has probably never been so much dedicated research to the evolution of interviewing, research to what does deception even mean or look like. There's such a body of research of what causes false confessions. You know, you've got groups like the Innocence Project that, you know, we can see about 30% of these wrongful convictions contain a false confession. So there's just so much information that's out there that it has forced practitioners to become aware of it and embrace it. Traditionally, what we've seen, and and whether a listener has watched Law & Order or or they've been a part of these cases more as as a practitioner, is a traditional confrontational interview often contains a presumption of guilt, right? So you have an investigator that walks in there and and whether it's from a polygraph or some kind of probably faulty forensic evidence or, or whatever it could be, walks in with strong confidence and says, you know, our investigation clearly cannot eliminate you, Michael, as a guilty subject. And it creates this presumption of guilt and this kind of confirmation bias where an investigator continues to 
accuse, where then whether an innocent or a guilty person is put into a position of defensiveness and resistance. And you know, you can imagine the emotional exhaustion of just a yes, you did, no, you didn't conversation. So uh, non-confrontational approaches are really focused on fact gathering in the beginning of a conversation, open-ended questions, trying to obtain as much reliable information as possible before there's ever a decision made where you're going to ask some type of, did you do it type question. So you're, you're putting a subject in a position where they can make a rational choice if they're going to confess or not of their own free will versus this emotional, defensive, kind of traditional approach we've seen for decades now. Just to clarify, the non-confrontational method still focuses on busting the bad guys. The big difference is the initial strategy and mindset at the beginning. Rather than immediately hone in on a favorite suspect with the goal of a confession, the investigator's mission is to gather information. This allows law enforcement to shore up its leads without immediately giving up information to the suspect. The investigator has more opportunity to test their theories and add strength to their case. On the other side of the coin, the suspect is not immediately spooked into non-cooperation or acting against their interests. The guilty person knows they're guilty. The innocent person knows they're innocent. And there's no need to immediately blur those lines, giving law enforcement more time to figure out if the suspect is guilty or innocent. This more patient game of cat and mouse not only reduces the chance for a false confession or a bad plea deal made out of fear, it allows law enforcement to hold their proverbial cards closer until the right moment arrives. You know, if we look at it from both the practitioner, from an investigator standpoint, and from looking at mitigating the risk of false confessions, it's, it's really a win-win. It's difficult as an investigator and you walk into a room and the first thing you do is accuse somebody, naturally you're going to meet, be met with resistance and emotion and you're, you become emotional. You give up your evidence early, which can lead to a whole bunch of other issues. So allowing, you know, refocusing investigators on my goal should be how do I get as much reliable information versus my goal should be to get a confession as quickly as possible. And really changing that mindset, I think, is, is really important. Part of our mission at the California Innocence Project is raising awareness about issues like false confessions and explaining how they happen. What if I told you that innocent people have confessed to crimes by providing secret information that only the guilty person or law enforcement would know? You're probably thinking, that's impossible. Only the guilty person would have that secret information. As crazy as that sounds, it actually happens. But how? How would they be able to confess to something they didn't do, but still know all the incriminating facts? Well, when a person is terrified, exhausted, or confused, they will sometimes say anything or do anything to get out of trouble or make the interrogation stop. And this includes weaving convincing false stories together with the evidence that the police already have. Is that too much to believe? Like, there is no way someone could actually pull that off, right? Well, it happens, and thanks to investigators like James Trainum, we now have documented proof. He uncovered this very issue during one of his own investigations, when not only did he get an innocent person to confess— but somehow they knew things that only the guilty person or law enforcement would know. But for the video evidence, James would have never discovered how this happened, and another innocent person would be behind bars for a crime they didn't commit. Here's how James became famously wrong. My main claim to fame is I screwed up. 
back in 1994 using the interrogation techniques that I was taught that would actually pass muster in any court in the country, I obtained a false confession. And after we discovered that it was a false confession, I really wanted to find out what was it that I did that convinced this person that it was a good idea to confess to a crime that they didn't do? And two, how did they know all the details, those things that we love to say that only the true killer would have known? How do they know all those details that they could tell me and put into the confession? Let's unpack that 1994 case. So, you know, you said that you discovered that you had elicited a, a false confession. How did you realize it? Well, I should start at the very beginning because when we identified this person as our suspect, we did it based on what we thought was pretty good forensic evidence. This was a person who was kidnapped off the streets, their credit cards were used, and they were later killed. And we had a, a handwriting examiner telling us that this was the person who signed the credit card slip. So we felt confident going in. The way it all fell apart was after we got the confession, we were doing the follow-up investigation, which so often doesn't happen. A lot of times, once you get the confession, the case is over, you move on, you don't worry about it. But we had a lot of follow-up to do. As you just heard, the innocent suspect in this case was very lucky because James was following up on the evidence. Usually, when a suspect confesses to a crime, there is little incentive to verify everything. But for some reason, even with a convincing confession, this case did not sit well with James, and so he probed further. And that's when he discovered some things that didn't add up. And as we were doing it, we uncovered her alibi. And, you know, she was living in a homeless shelter at the time. She had a sign-in and sign-out sheet. And she was out some during the night that we needed her out, but not during the critical times. And she told you that when you were no, uh, doing your interview? No, she did not tell us oh, any wow. of that. There wow. was so much in going back and looking at this case. There were so many clues that just went whoom, right over top our heads. You know, because we were so locked into tunnel vision that it was her and you know, we uh, fell victim to confirmation bias, and so we ignored the evidence that pointed in a different direction. And there was so much of it there, looking back. Further fueling a problematic situation like this is confirmation bias. This happens when investigators suspect someone so much that they fail to see evidence to the contrary. Confirmation bias is a real problem for investigations. Not only can it result in guilty people getting away with their crimes, it can also mean that innocent people get blamed for them. Even the best-of-intentioned investigator can fall into this trap. Why is that? Well, as we've seen over and over again, investigators are under a lot of pressure to solve crimes. And sometimes, they just get a feeling about a person. Sometimes it's a look or something the suspect said, but the investigator can't shake the feeling. As a result, they only see evidence that supports their theory. The scary part is that the investigator does not see their own bias, and so the investigation becomes dangerous to innocent people. And as we've seen so many times before, once an investigator targets a suspect, it's very difficult to undo the damage. Here is James talking about confirmation bias creeping in. Tunnel vision, tunnel vision has to happen in a case. Sooner or later, you're going to focus in on one suspect or one theory over others. The real danger is when confirmation bias also comes in. And confirmation bias is the selective interpretation of evidence. You begin to cherry pick your evidence to support your theory rather than, okay, we have some new evidence come in. Does it help our theory? Does it hurt our theory? Do we need to reevaluate our theory based on the new evidence? We don't do that. 
We just focus in on what is helpful and ignore what, and it's a very common human, you know, thing. I mean, we all do it, but when it comes to an investigation, that's, you're going to find that in every single wrongful conviction case that's going to be present. And so then from the point where you realize she's got this alibi and it doesn't really match up with your theory. Right. You know, how do you uh, go from that? And because I think in a lot of cases, they probably would just disregard that, right? Or they'd say, oh, well, there must be something wrong with the sign in procedure and we'll just disregard we that. We tried. We tried, but we couldn't do it. So we went back and had our original forensic evidence reevaluated by others. And it turns out that it wasn't as solid as we thought. Wow. And so we had to let her go. So far, we've heard how James figured out the suspect was innocent. But how did she know all those things about the crime if she didn't commit it? It's not like the information was out in the public, at least not yet. The next question was, how did she know all these details? Well, fortunately, I kind of violated our policy, which was we only videotaped the final confession, and I videotaped a large part of the interrogation. And by going back and looking at it very carefully, you could see where in a very subtle ways, we fed her bits and pieces of information about the case, either through like a leading question or maybe showing her a piece of the evidence, like the credit card slips. Think about credit card slips. What can you get off of that? You can get off the store name, the amount that was spent, the store location. And that's the things that she could feed us back. She couldn't tell us what she bought, though, because it's not on there. And that should have been a red flag. But unfortunately, it wasn't something that we picked up on right away. I know you said it violated policy, but why did you record it? Like, was it unintentional or did you just hit record and go into the room and just not realize? Or was it just like a... Well, yes and no. I mean, she had actually confessed early on to finding the credit cards and using them. And we thought that that was all we were going to get at this point. So we figured we would videotape that part of the confession. And then after we finished, we just let the videotape run. And so we inadvertently captured the rest of it. And thank God we did, because without a videotape, it is so hard to go back and do what we were able to do and see where the contamination came in, because it was so subtle. It was so piecemeal. James letting that video recorder run is one of the most fortunate accidents in criminal justice history. Not only did it help that innocent person accused of murder, but it provided valuable insight into something that law enforcement officials thought never happened. Sometimes it takes a mistake to break down barriers. I, like everybody else, at first didn't believe that they happened, of course, because no, that, that's what they taught us, that you didn't confess unless you were tortured or mentally ill. And that really contributes a lot to the mindset of, you know, people who don't want to admit that this could be a false confession. But the more I began to look at this thing, it not only impacts suspects and confessions, but I realized that we use the same interrogation tactics on a witness who we believe is not telling us the truth. And the same contamination can occur. I want to highlight that last part a little more. James just told us that the same process used to elicit false confessions from innocent people is also being used to question witnesses. That means that there is a significant probability that witnesses are providing untrue information to investigators and prosecutors. Here's more from James about witnesses. And so, you know, we, we have bad witness statements all the time, and it can often result from the way that we interview and interrogate these people. 
I really realized that it, it was a much more widespread problem than we wanted to admit. And since, you know, crimes are solved by witnesses, evidence, and confessions. Of those two, they involve talking to people and getting accurate information. Now, evidence, of course, you need to talk to people in order to put it into perspective. So being able to interview people properly and get accurate information is the most important thing that we do as cops. And it's the thing that we are trained in the less. I mean, we get more firearms training than we do training on how to talk to people and evaluate evidence. Knowing what we know today, it's hard to imagine where we would be if James had not let that tape run in his video camera those many years ago. What if law enforcement never got to see that innocent person falsely confess? How many more innocent people would have been convicted of crimes they didn't commit? It's a scary thought, one that certainly gives me pause. So what's the moral of the story? We've heard about manipulations during interrogations, investigators lying to suspects, confirmation bias, false confessions, and how innocent people can appear to know things that only the guilty person would know. During our time together, we're going to talk about many topics like these. Topics that show us how and why innocent people get convicted for crimes they didn't commit. Our goal is not to indict our criminal justice system for shortcomings, but rather to improve it so that it works as intended. We still have much to cover with new episodes coming soon, so stay tuned. Until then, please allow me to leave you with these takeaways. Nobody's perfect. Badge, robe, white coat, or otherwise. Things are not always what they seem. The improbable is still possible. Systems and safeguards do break down. People slip through the cracks. And yes, people confess to crimes they didn't commit. The best thing for us to do is to be open-minded, try our best, and fix what we can. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Produced and written by Lawrence Coletti. Audio engineering by Adam Lockwood. Thank you to Clio for their support of the California Innocence Project and the CIP podcast. Special contribution of music and sound elements by real-life exoneree William Michael Dillon. You can find his catalog of work at frameddillon.com. That's framed, D-I-L-L-O-N.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Samanchik, and you've been listening to the California Innocence Project podcast here on Legal Talk Network. Every month, the California Innocence Project receives thousands of handwritten letters from those seeking justice for wrongful convictions. The impact of these injustices can be life-altering, and without the right technology in place, CIP cannot help all those in need. That's why the team relies on Clio's case management software. By logging these letters into Clio, the CIP team can work on hundreds of matters at any given time and investigate these cases all the way through to exoneration. Clio works tirelessly with organizations like CIP to transform the legal experience for all. Visit Clio.com to learn how they support law firms big and small in creating equitable and just outcomes. That's C-L-I-O.com.